New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hey everybody, this is Jim Mendrinos, and welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series. We have a really fun guest today, Corey Kahaney. I've known Corey for years, and she is one of the hardest working, most dedicated stand-ups. Uh, she's done everything you guys want to do, from performing all over the world to performing countless sets on television. So sit back and get ready to learn. And to help me welcome our guest for today, Corey Kahaney. So this is fun for me because actually I don't often get to just grab friends and just have a fun conversation as well as talking craft. And Corey and I know each other for uh, too long. Is it too long? It's way too long. 28, 28 years. years. Well, I started '92. Yeah, so and you were definitely there that first that maybe not that first day, but certainly that first you know month. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So. You were a player then. I mean, you know, I think you were well on your way. Yeah, to, you had prestige at that point, and um, I, I, I respected you. Oh well, thank you. What What's always amazed me is. Not just the quality of the material, but the amount of material I've seen you do over the years. And I've seen you do so many different shows, including I've seen you work on a cruise ship. I went on a cruise on vacation and Corey was the comic. Uh, so I've seen you work every possible venue, you know, from the, the horrible little bars we've done together straight to the cruise ships. And we've even worked a theater or two together. How often do you write? Um, not often enough. I have a, um, a th uh, during the quarantine, during this uh, uh, socially distancing period, I actually set up a writing group, which has kept me a little bit sane, gives me a little bit of structure. I I'm going to actually, uh, I'm going to comment on something you just said earlier. You said I have a lot of material, but the funny thing is, is I can't tell you how many times family members will say, you know, when they watch a TV show, I heard that joke already. <laughs> And I, I always want to say to them, you know how long it took to actually craft that joke? That joke has been, you know, going through so many metamorphoses. And uh, yeah, it's a good joke. It's kind of like, you know, it's like my American pie. I'm going to play it over and over again. Um, but uh, how often do I write? I go through, I go through spurts where I'll write a lot. And um, I, it's funny because when I had a real job, a full-time job and comedy, I was writing so much more because I had a whole audience constantly to run things by. You know, I worked in hotels. Yeah. I think I told you this. So I would go and I would do, you know, I would do a new joke for the front desk and then I would do it, do it for the reservations ladies and they laugh at everything. And then I would go to the concierge and do it for them. And if I really thought a joke was good, the big test would be I would take it to accounting. <laughs> They never laughed at anything. And occasionally, if they looked up, if they looked up from their screens, I knew that I might have a joke. Um, and then I had to learn how to do that without having a job. So I would do it with, you know, dry cleaners, doormen. Um, and I think, Jim, you probably uh, have someone in your life like I do that I can play this game called Is This Anything? <laughs> you yeah. know, where it's, you know, it, you're, you're trying to ask another professional is this, is there something here or, you know, or is this too played out? And I, I have like three or four people that I can play. Is this anything with, and that really helps me. Now, what is your process of writing? Cause I know for me, I just, on um, yellow legal pad pen, just write it out. You know, when you get an idea, how does it go from your brain to your mouth on stage? It, it, differently, you know, so often, this is a terrible secret to reveal, but so often I'm in a family setting and somebody says something and I'm like, that's fantastic. And then I just run and I write it down or I put it on my phone and I know I'm going to use it. And when I say my family, I mean, brother-in-law, father-in-law, mother-in-law, people will say, my sister, you know, um, uh, my uh, my sister, I'll give you an example. So my sister is much taller than me and she made a joke about how she almost asked uh, if, uh, if she needed to scroll down to get in a doorway. And so that <laughs> became a joke 
right away. I was like, you know, I, I think I'm on the computer too much because I was in bed with my husband and I said, hey, could you scroll down? You see how I'm saying? So yeah. the, I take a joke or a very funny line that they say, and then I incorporate it into a joke structure. That happens a lot. That, but my best jokes, Jim, the jokes that have gotten me TV shows, the jokes that have become closers, mm-hmm. I honestly, I have thought of them right when I first wake up. Mm-hmm. And like right when I first, and if I am good and I write it down, like the, my husband is a lawyer, you know, not the yeah. cutthroat ruthless lawyer, but you know, the, it's like sleeping with a rock star in a Christian band. I, I woke up and thought of that. Wow. So a lot of the jokes are epiphanies. A lot of the jokes are just pop right at it. Sort of. Yeah, sort of. <clears throat> now, and don't forget a lot of times, a lot of times watching or listening to somebody else that's funny do a joke in a structure. The structure can trigger a joke, you yeah. know? And that, you know, uh, that I find just happens in everyday life. But I'm very jealous of people like Mike Brabiglia and Jim Gaffigan who have a thing where they write every day in front of the computer, 10 minutes, and they pump out material. Um, but it's not me. Yeah, well, every, there's no right or wrong way to write. You know, that's, you know, I spoke to Robert Klein and he's saying that he, he writes on stage, which would who, who does Robert, that? Robert Klein. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and for me, that would make my head explode if I had to write on stage. It would just, it would rub up against me artistically the wrong way. I think artists don't realize that what works for you works for you. Right. And you have to kind of honor that. What um, I want to talk a little bit about, because you're mentioning like all the things I want young comics to know about. For instance, you're, you're mentoring, you know, the structure of your set or a closer. You know, before you said all the bits that become closers. What differentiates a closing bit in your eyes as opposed to another bit? Um, well, the, the best way to describe it is, I would say, if it's a bit that you can lay down on the floor and talk into a mic and the audience is going to laugh, no matter what, chances are that's a closer. Okay. I also believe that that's an opener. So like if a joke will work, like if I'm in another room and I yell it from a doorway and it still gets a laugh, I think that's an opener. Um, I think, again, it's by feel. Like I know if a joke completely, you know, gets the audience as though they're on a roller coaster and they're, 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 they're putting down the bar with you. Like, yep, strap me in, bitch. That is the... Um, that feels like a closer to me. Um, and you know what? Sometimes a closer can really be just a one-line joke. I can't, very often, you know, comedians that are very cerebral and that are not, um, that are not physical, uh, their closing joke could just be a funny line. And, um, and that's fine for them. I just feel people have paid, <laughs> people have, people have uh, hired me to do a show that has sort of an arc. And so I try to develop something that, you know, as Ross Bennett would say, brings the audience to another level. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now, you, every comic has philosophies, you know, and, and I've heard Ross say that all the time. That's not something that I think, I, you know, I think I, I'm taking the audience exactly where I want them to go. They go wherever I want them, not, you know, I, I don't think they, they're capable of going to another level unless I want them there. Do you have philosophies that that you write around or philosophies that you perform around? A couple, like I I really don't want uh, the audience to ever feel um, really squeamish, you know, like, and what I mean by that is I stay away from anything scatological. And I mean, you know, pooping, peeing, farting. I I just don't, I mean, unless it's such a smart joke, I I don't want to go there ever. And that may also have been because I never wanted anybody to see me as a girl comic. So I bodily functions, I just firmly decided to stay away from. Uh, but it's, it, it's, it served me well not to do anything scatological, uh, n- nothing that's too gross. Uh, I think the grossest joke I ever wrote, but I, I kept it because it was smart, is I was, I was trying to get into a wedding dress, you know, when I got married the second time. And I said, I am so hungry on this diet. My husband farted in the car. And I was like, oh my God, is that pot roast? 
You know what I'm saying? It was just a... T- <laughs> but yeah. even then, I felt very uncomfortable doing that. <laughs> but it, it's a killer joke. So, you know, sometimes the, sometimes the, the result is worth the squeamishness on our part when we do yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, and, I'm, you know, there's, there's some people that have rules about it. I, I also think Eddie Brill was a tremendous influence for me. You know, so Eddie Brill, if you don't know who he is, he was the booker for Letterman for many, many years. And, you know, that was a big rule for him because Dave didn't like anything scatological. So I just adopted that because it took me 14 years to get Letterman. <laughs> it was the only thing I wanted. And I, honestly, since then, I've not had any uh, structure or goals or direction in my comedy career. <laughs> That was it. You hit the moment and then you were there like, I'll just cruise the rest of the way. Not just, I just like nothing. I, you know, people are like, do you want a sitcom? I mean, okay. <laughs> It'd be nice, but it wasn't. Nobody was ever going to, I knew when I look, I know that I don't look like, you know, a TV person and I'm not a great actress. I'll be honest with you. It took me so long to learn how to be truthful on stage. And then you want me to be lying. <laughs> It's just, I haven't been able to make that uh, adjustment. Well, I kind of want to uh, touch on this because I got to see you in the early years and I got to see your your metamorphosis uh, when you started. And you had gotten the rep very early and this is a kiss of death for most of us. You know, she's a great writer, you know, which is a really, you know, backhanded way of saying, you know, they like your jokes better than they like you. But something triggered on you and you got confidence in your performance. And mm-hmm. it, it was almost night and day. It was a Richard Jenny like, you know, change. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Richard Jenny had all those years where he just bombed. And then one day he kind of decided, oh, no, I'm great. What gave you the confidence? What gave you, what changed in your performance that let you be more confident on stage? I mean, it... The answer is the answer for all comics. I just got a tremendous influx of stage time. Um, I think what you're referring to is I got hired to be the uh, opening act for a, uh, a Broadway show. I'm not proud. It was called Puppetry of the Penis, if yeah. you remember that. Oh, yeah. But what that meant was I did eight shows a week, and I was done at 830. So I'm already out, I've performed. Where do you think I'm going after that? I'm going to club. So it, it, it changed for me, instead of doing, I had, a, I had a, um, a goal of 11 sets a week. 11 sets a week was my minimum. But when I ratcheted it up to 17, 18, 19, that's when, that's when that metamorphosis happened. So the stage became the same as sitting here. So if Jim, if you said, Corey, go do five minutes, I'll be like, I'll be right back. You know what I mean? There's no prep. It's me. I just go. So I think that's, uh, that may be where the metamorphosis. However, I will tell you this. I regret taking uh, some of those people who said I was a great writer. I remember when I first had a development deal, they said, you know, they said, and of course you'll be on the writing staff. And I was like, no, I want to be, I want to play me. What a moron. If I could go back and smack that girl. (laughs) Well, you know, what's been more enjoyable for you? Because for me, I clearly, while I adore being on stage, I have a lot more fun writing. I have a lot more fun with pad and pen. I adore being on stage. I always identify as a comic. But if you said to me I could only do one the rest of my life, clearly I'd choose writing. What's always been the the more fun path for you? Performing, probably. But you know, because now I do so much private coaching, which you and I both know often means joke writing. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I get as much pleasure watching them deliver a joke I wrote than me performing a joke I wrote. So that is shifting. Like if you said, uh, if you said, could, would you like to do that for the rest of your life? I'd be like, yeah, I mean, as long as it gets performed. I like, you know, I want the, I want the love, the gratification. I don't care if I'm the only one who, who knows. <laughs> yeah, the anonymity I'm still not quite used to. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's talk about TV because your stuff has always been, you write so concise, you write so tight. So, you know, looking at what you do, 
it's like, oh, she's going to naturally translate to TV. And then when I saw how much tighter your set got when you did the Letterman show, you know, how much work did you have to put into tightening it up, ratcheting it up and making a club set into a TV spot? It's, it's an entirely different um, formula, getting that, the tight five for TV than, than obviously a cruise ship set where you're doing, you know, 45 to 50. Um, incredibly precise. Every um, every ah, uh, every pause is considered. And I learned what five minutes looks like. It's, you know, it's, it's three pages double spaced, no more. And um, any, anywhere you can chop, you chop, you just chop because anywhere you can chop allows you a pause or it allows you a facial expression or it allows you a nuance. And you want those because the TV audience is, is uh, you know, not the, not the live TV audience, but the people watching TV catch those things. Um, I was really lucky. I did that show, uh, the late, show, late, late show with Craig Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And after the second time I did the show, they told me I don't have to send in tape anymore. Just, just send in the written. And I, I felt like I had the biggest cock in the world that I could just sit there and <laughs> type up this, uh, you know, this, this pay, and they knew that I knew, and they knew, and I knew that they knew that I knew. And it was, it was the, just them having that much confidence in me uh, made me feel so good about my work. And yes, and I, so I learned, you know, cause I did so many of them. I learned how to, um, I learned how to write them. Yeah. yeah. Now the writing of it is one thing, but then the prepping of it, you know, I, I remember oh, when you were God. doing You're never. It, 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 my again, I I had I made a deal with myself. It had I have to perform it ten sets, ten sets of the of the finished writing, and I listen to each one because I, I it it has to be that tight. That's what's going to make them invite me back if it's that tight. If I have you know if if I have any flaws in it, they're going to be like oh, and also they're so tough on women. If you know they'll be like well you know <laughs> she's a girl. Yeah. And I, I, I can't give them that opportunity. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I just perform it over and over again. I remember when I was doing Letterman, we were going away for the weekend to do something for somebody. And I, I, I had only done nine sets. So I went to Stand Up New York, their open mic. And I don't know if you know anything. Stand Up New York on 78th yeah. Street is the worst open mic. Nobody even looks up. And it, it's a whole click of people that do that particular open mic. And uh, they certainly had no idea who I was. Um, and I went up and I did the five minutes that I was gonna do on Letterman that killed. And they, I did not get a, a single laugh. <laughs> now, did that, did that end your confidence at all? Did that, did it make you question? No, because what happened was on the car ride, I listened and I realized that regardless of their response, I still took my time. I did it. And, um, you know what? I think I had enough, uh, probably enough confidence at that point that I just thought how funny it's going to be if, and when any of these people see the set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, they did cause they watch all of them. Right. Um, there's a difference between doing it in your bathroom and doing it in a room with people, even if people aren't laughing. It's, I can't explain it. It's just, it, there's an interface that happens yeah. with the air and it, it, it's not the same, which is why I always tell new comics, the only way you're gonna get good is if you perform, you know, it's like flying. You have to have a certain number of hours on stage to be a pro comic. Yep. And, um, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. Sometimes people can't even put their finger on it when they say, oh, you know, this one's, uh, I remember, I had recently a comic call me and said that the critique he got was tighten it up. And I watched his set. It really wasn't much to tighten. It was a good set. It just, he was green. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, tighten it up is kind of a nice catch-all for the industry. Like it's vague enough that you're going to have to take some time to figure it out. But, right. you know, it, that work ethic that you have, that, that's something that most comics don't. That discipline that you've always had. You, 
I've only seen you going to another club to work something out when other comics would be going, you know, to bar to hang out with their friends. How much do you think the work ethic is, is part of what got you where you are? Uh, I'm sure 90% the work ethic, but you know, I'm, I'm also, uh, I can't deny that I was very fortunate, you know, I mean, at two years in, I got that silly uh, girls night out. And then two and a half years, I got that, um, it was that Comedy Central one, the stand-up spotlight. Yep. And so having those early on in my career gave me, it, it's the, the message I got was you're in the right place, keep doing this. And I, I know uh, I, I was fortunate because of the timing of that and, and comedy was still very popular uh, to a certain degree when I started stand-up. Now I see young comics now and it takes them four or five years to get that first TV credit. And boy, you have to have a lot of belief in yourself to, to stick with it. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So my work ethic had a lot to do with, um, with knowing that it was possible. Now, you also, from the beginning, wrote like you should be on TV. You weren't doing. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. You don't really. And so? I'll tell you why. For after I got after those two TV things, I couldn't get arrested. It was four. There was a four-year uh, gap between Stand Up Spotlight and my next TV spot, and I couldn't figure out what it was. I couldn't figure out what it was, and then finally, I just thought, well, there's five guys that seem to get all of these shows. Any any show. Yeah. And I think it was Greg Fitzsimmons and uh, it was um, uh, Todd Barry and um, Eddie and I don't remember, but like those five guys, uh, uh, Vic Henley. Yeah. And so I just, I, I looked at all the club schedules and guess what? They were all performing every single club pretty much every night. And so I knew where to find them. So I would follow Greg Fitzsimmons to the comic strip, follow Greg Fitzsimmons to West Side Comedy Club, follow Greg Fitzsimmons. And I watched a set and it, it didn't take long. It took a month to realize the reason why they're getting it and I'm not is because they had a strong opener. <laughs> All right. I mean, it was, I'm, I'm talking, it was fat free. It was, there was no argument because if you don't have a strong opener, they're not gonna watch the rest of your tape. The yeah. tape is gonna get turned off. Whether it's a festival, whether it's, you know, whether it's stand-up stilettos or Nick Mom at Night or America's Got Talent, if that opener isn't fat-free, they're, they're gonna move on. And uh, it, it, it took me three months to like, schmuck, they're just opening strong. Hmm. But when I'm talking about you, you've always written like you're on TV, your stuff has always been high class. You're not afraid to show your intelligence. You know, you write crisp oh, one-liners and, and you're not taken around on stage like a lot of new comics do. And that's not a slap on new comics. When you start, the, the having fun part of it can take over. What I've always admired about you and just wish I had for myself was I would, I would watch you in clubs you know, and you were there to work. You were there to do business. You were there to get better. And, and singularly, this wasn't just a passion or fun. This was, this was your job. This is your business. And, and you I had that you from the beginning. I think you just seen me at my best, Jim. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was a lot of times where I was just, uh, you know, goofing around. I, I gave myself a lot of goof around. I think when you and I cross paths, first of all, we're both, you know, somewhat headliners. So if we were on the same show together, most likely it was a high pressure show or it was a show that, you know, we were working on something. Yeah. I think you might've seen me at my best. Well, I, I can only judge by how I saw you. I, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I remember when I was first starting out, my daughter who was, I don't know, maybe she was 10, 10 and a half. And she was in the back of the room and two comics were in the back of the room. They didn't know she was my daughter. And uh, one comic said to the other comic, oh, she just does dick jokes. My daughter heard it. And she said, <laughs> at least my mother has jokes. Oh, yeah. Your daughter is funnier than most comics. <laughs> Always has been. 
I mean, it was just so you know there was a there was a a long period of dick jokes. Yeah. yeah well, you know, growing pains. I think we all have them, but they were still better crafted dick jokes than most people have. You know, clean jokes. So you have to also give yourself credit for that. Um, yeah. So and they're, and, and they're crowd pleasers. <laughs> And, and, and they're helping you pay your mortgage. So that's... Well, here's the thing though, you, you bring up a good point. So um, crowd pleasers mm-hmm. are jokes that we know are always going to work, but they're not always the jokes we're most proud of. Yeah. And you taught me this. Sometimes a really goofy, dumb joke, which is a back pocket joke, needs to come out of your pocket so they'll listen to the smart joke. Yeah. It's, it's I've often found that comics sometimes, uh, you know, and I've, I've actually had this argument with Brian Regan because he has one of the funniest bits uh, about uh, the word fuck that he used to do in clubs and he stopped doing because um, he made the commitment to be clean. And I'm there like, I've seen you work on some shows where that bit would have rescued you. And, and he's adamant, no. Now he's about 40 rungs higher on the ladder than I am. So if you're gonna listen to one of our advice, listen to him, <clears throat> but having those back pocket pieces, uh, uh, you know, that you can just whip out and go, okay, I need to reset. I need a breather. I need to catch my breath because something's going terribly wrong. Go play with this for a while. I think that's important for every comic, you know? It is. It yeah. is. Uh, I, you've so, touched so on where, it. Where, where it divides the, the real pros from the not so pros is when people think that, oh, that joke kills, so it must be a good joke. I'm always aware that it's not a good joke. Yeah. Even if I'm doing it. Yeah. And uh, that separates a lot of comics. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, there's one bit in my act where every time I do it, I'm there like, all right, I'm not, I'm not having fun. I'm not having a good set. So this is coming out. And and I just know that it's nothing but fluff. You know, and I think every, I think every comic has that if they're truthful about it. We've all got that one or two bits that we go, this does too well for me not to do it, but I'm not doing it every night. So right, and I, I sometimes lose my respect for the audience when that is the biggest laugh oh. I get, <laughs> and that's bad. That's yeah. bad because I again I don't I'm not a great actress. They know when I don't like them. <laughs> yeah, you know it. It's fun as comics. You know, a lot of times I don't know if you're this way, but. Sometimes I like watching a comic not having a good time on stage because I so feel what they're going through and, and watching it. And when you don't like the audience, oh, that is so clear. That is so clear when you don't. <laughs> so but, yet, but yet you still get them to laugh, which is, I think, one of the marks of a, a professional. You can, you can be up there. You can... I would often say it, it borders on contempt, maybe not quite contempt, but it borders on it. And yet you're still making them laugh the entire right. well, time. The, 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 the kiss of death is when you, a joke, you know, a joke doesn't work and you lose your cool or you lose your nerve and they can smell fear. Because if they yeah. can smell fear, uh, then uh, it, it's just, it, it's very hard to get it back. And then uh, what comes, you come off as um, being sort of a jerk. Even though, you're, even though you and I both know watching the comic, he's not being a jerk, he's just terrified. He can't figure out what to do next. So it comes off that he's, a, he's, he's just an asshole. Yeah. And so the audience thinks he's an asshole, but really what was going on was it was abject terror at not being able to make something work. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Sometimes it reads, yeah. it reads wrong. Yeah, it does. But right. I, I really do want to. Uh, <laughs> hey there. Um, I really do want to point this out because you do this better than anybody I've ever seen. Um, I had uh, when I was booking Gotham Comedy Club, I had booked you on a late show on a Friday, which for anybody that's not in comedy, late show on a Friday, not the most fun show on the planet. Um, and the audience was, for lack of a better way of saying, you tell them why. Should what? we tell them? Well, let's tell them why. So a late show Friday night is terrible because the audience, you know, worked Monday through Friday. Yep. And if they've made it to the late show, that means they've been drinking all night. 
it's really the end of their night, but they're saying, no, 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 I don't want to go to bed, mommy. And so they, then they go to a comedy club with that kind of uh, heads, that kind of frame of mind. And yeah. that's why they're the toughest audience. Yep. So Corey was on that late show and the audience was well lit. And this, this was a verbally drunk audience as opposed to a not drunk audience. And you got on stage and they wanted to fight and you just fought and you, you inflicted your will upon them. Now to paint the picture to everyone, a comic is on stage alone with a microphone and, you know, lights pointed at them and, you know, they are alone on stage and the, there is 130 people surrounding you and the 130 people are singularly willed to have a party where they're the center of attention and this one lone comic on stage has got a wrestler from them. And I watched you stand up there in a 20 minute spot and fight. And it took, it took 12 minutes for you to get them to shut up, pay attention. But by the end of it, they were laughing and applauding where they should. You turned them from a mob into an audience. Now, there, there's a whole lot that's involved in there. You, you were just flat out that good. You are flat out that funny. <clears throat> but the willingness to not quit, the willingness not to give up on a set, because there's a whole lot of comics that would have just gone up there and traded insults and gotten their $75 and just chalked that up to, you know, another shitty show. But you were determined to make it a show. And I've seen you do there that There must so have been times. something that gave me hope. There must have been, because there must have been one or two audience members that I saw their faces and they were with me. You know what I mean? I know what you're talking about. If I stick with it, I have to get, I have to have, or maybe you, maybe there were two or three comics in the back of the room that maybe were, that, that I was doing it for. That, you have to find some, something to love about the audience. Young comics don't realize this. Nobody wants you to fail when you get up on stage. Well, maybe the Friday Night Late Show they do. <laughs> but for the most part, when you come on stage, they're not saying, oh, please tank. They're saying, you know, they're saying, you know, I, I want to laugh. I'm here to laugh. So, you know, if you give it to them, you're going to be okay. <laughs> and if you're stuck, just look for that friendly face. It, it may be the front row, maybe the second row, maybe the back row, or maybe it's, maybe it's the waitress who was nice to you when you, you got a Coke before you performed. Yeah. You have to yeah. find a focus. Now, how long did it take you to learn? I also think that I owe all that to Lucian, who was, you know, the, the booker. Yeah, because for a year, Lucian gave me that Friday night second show. And all of a sudden, I get a Saturday early show, and I asked him about it. He goes, oh, well, you know, I wanted to see if you could do the Friday late show. That takes a certain amount of skill. You have it now. <laughs> A year he made me do it. Wow. He was, was renowned brutal. for putting comics in brutal spots. Brutal. You know, um, yeah. The first three times I saw my name on the strip schedule, uh, two were following Kennison and one was following Eddie Murphy. You know, when Eddie Murphy was warming up for the Raw tour. <laughs> you know, and when I asked him about it, he was there like, well, someone's going to bomb in those spots anyway. <laughs> you might as well get experience. So it was... Uh, for a, a lot of comics don't like Lucian, but he did kind of know what he was doing at times. He did. He absolutely yeah. did. I, I, I also, I'll, I'll, one, more t one more comment on this. So uh, one time I was at the uh, Boston Comedy Club and I was sitting in the back row with my then manager, who was Barry Katz, and a crucial bad move on Corey's part was leaving him because I thought <laughs> I could do better. But anyway, I was sitting next to this big time manager who was my manager and he also represented Jeffrey Ross. And Jeffrey was on stage and Barry leaned uh, over to talk to me and he said, do you see that? Jeff can work any crowd. And it was, you know, it was a mostly urban crowd that was in the audience that night. And he goes, tomorrow night, he's gonna be with you at the country club in Long Island and he's gonna kill like he's killing now. If you can entertain every crowd, then you'll work forever. And I think that really 
I'll never forget it. It had such an impact on me. And for a very long time, Jeffrey Ross was my my model. Like I I look I looked to him and I used him in my mind, sort of a what would Jeffrey Ross do? And you know, when he went when he went all the way, you know, with the with the roasts, that's where we parted ways. But for a long time, he was he was very much an inspiration to me. I, I loved his comedy and I loved his work ethic and I loved his approach. Now, who are the comics that you that you saw around the city when you started that you actually learned from? The guys that you sat and watched and and learned from? Well, obviously Jeffrey Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, David Tell was a huge influence. I mean, I never really worked with him. He was, you know, he would close a show that I might have been on. Um, <laughs> But I mean, he was, uh, you know, he was everything. I think he still is everything. To this day, if I ever really am down and I see that, you know, Dave is at a club and I can just pop in and watch for 10 minutes, I'll do it because he's, he's to me, just the master. Uh, other people that uh, came up that had a lot of influence on me. Um, uh, Jim Gaffigan, probably. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I started with Judah Friedlander. We were both in the same open mics. We were both in the same rotation. Um, and uh, so he's, I, I sort of see him as my homie, even, even though he's, you know, much more famous yeah. than me now. But uh, he's, he's somebody I really like. And, and, you know, I was already, I was already um, kind of established, but Bill Burr and I, you know, were, were very friendly for, for quite a while. I guess that's it. Okay. Now, you touched a little bit on the industry, and um, the industry is inherently unfair. The industry is inherently of the moment, you know, and, and, and not incredibly kind. And so many comics get crushed by it. We, we've seen it a thousand times where a comic has a shop, the shop passes, and then, you know, sitting at the bar two years later going, fuck the industry. You've never done that. You've never badmouthed them. You, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had a, your fuck me industry moments privately, but you've always, you know, uh, you know, last comic standing, then, you know, that led to something. And when that started having Letterman and that led to something, and when that started having, you always reinvent, you always find another avenue and you always keep working. What is it that you well, think that's, that- You know, that's the thing. I mean, that again, if you can always keep working, I mean, it's the only, listen, the only thing you have control over is your act. The only thing that you can uh, that you can determine about the crescendo or the future of your life is 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 what you do on stage. And uh, you got to remember that that you're not powerless there. You're only you are powerless with the industry. Listen, there's so many female comics. You know when they get their first break and uh, you know or a festival or or a manager or an agent, they'll come to me and they'll tell me their sob story. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Listen, call Human Resources and tell them that this was very unfair. That you absolutely uh, it was your turn. And uh, you know, I, I file a report and they'll look at me and I'll be like, you know, what do you think? This, the whole reason we're in this business is because it's dirty and dangerous and unpredictable. That's what is attractive about it. So, you know, it, it comes with the territory. If you're looking for any kind of order in this, in this crazy business, you're, you're going to get lost. Think about how many people so didn't deserve it that, you know, have big careers. But you know what? I watch them now and they've morphed into, they, they've become the elder statesmen that they were anointed to be. I have to believe that maybe I wasn't meant for that, but at the same time, I've always made a living. I've always paid the rent. I've always, I put kids through school and I get to do what I love to do. I don't have to, you know, work at the post office. So just a couple of, a couple of final things. Um, I absolutely love that, you know, whenever somebody's identifying, you know, oh, female comic, you're not in that conversation. Corey's just a comic. You've always been, you've transcended it. You're obviously female and you are a comic, but you're not lumped into the same negative derision that a lot of female comics are. You've always kept, um, you've always kept above that fray. And for me, it's how you present yourself, how you 
you know, put yourself in the market because you've always been one of the comics on the show. Why is it that you think that you've always gotten that level of respect and you've always gotten, you know, thought of more as a comic first than as a female comic? Well, I mean, it was, I was terrified that I would be uh, categorized otherwise. So I, I, it was intentional to always be seen as a comedian, to always be seen. Uh, but I, I, I don't want to deny the fact that I'm a female and I have experienced an awful lot of, you know, that gender's predicament in the business. I've had people be very inappropriate. And I, I used to say this, every female comic or female comics get the same opportunities as men, but the men get more spots to prepare. Mm. So um, it was very important to me that I got enough spots to prepare. So I, I, I think it was, and also I, I love the craft of the joke. I love the whole, um, the whole uh, gestalt of, of, of comedy. I love the history of comedy. Um, I'm into it all. I, I'm a nerd. I'm a comedy nerd. And I, I think if, if my, my focal point is, is, is the, um, the technical aspect of joke writing, uh, then I'm always going to be in the conversation. Yeah. But if I'm, if, if I'm more interested in the fake eyelashes and the, you know, and the outfit and, and who has, you know, who's flirting with me, then I, I, I'm, I might not be taken seriously. I think it was afraid. Yeah. Yeah, but but you definitely got to be seen the way you wanted to. I, I do want to touch on a couple more things before I let you go. I know you got family stuff to do. You you shepherd a lot of young comics. You teach, you know, and, and you also private coach. And what are the bigger mistakes you see the young ones making that are easy to avoid? Like the easy fixes. Um, I, yes, I think that it's that work ethic, you know, where it's like, you know, they come to me for a session, then they run it once and they say the joke didn't work. I'm like, what do you mean the joke didn't work? How many times did you run it? <laughs> um, yeah. Anybody who coaches with me, I say, listen, I want to hear the, send me the audio tape tonight because I want to hear how the joke sounds on stage. Well, that's a lot of pressure on a comedian because a lot of them just like, oh, I paid my, you know, my $150, you know, to do a coaching session. I'm, I, I'm good. No, 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 no. That's just a tiny fraction of it. I want to see you perform it six times. Send me the tape. Send me the tape. I'll listen. I'll listen to an audio tape while I'm on the subway. I want to hear how it comes out. But the biggest, the biggest misnomer is, uh, listen, nobody wants to hear the truth. And the truth is you got to have the time on stage to develop as a comic. It's, how do I find my voice? You don't need a voice. You need stage time. The voice comes. Yeah, you have your voice. You just need to unleash it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. and you know, and then the other thing that's hard is so many times uh, I will see somebody who is ambivalent about being a comedian, and it's like this is not for people that are ambivalent. You know, no. if there's other things that you like doing, do that. Don't do this unless you can't do anything else. Yeah. It's a, you know, I hate to say it's a calling, but it is, it's a calling. Like if this is the only thing that allows you to express yourself and that you feel fulfilled by, then okay, then you're a comic. But if you, if you like doing a pitch in a meeting or, you know, a presentation in a meeting and you could have a pension and, and an IRA and a, and, a, and a retirement, you know, plan, God, do that. I, you know, that, that is struggling. And, and you know, you know, it's, I can't not take the money, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta take the money. Let's, uh, let's also talk about personal journey because we all start out and, I know for me, I had an epiphany moment um, after bombing following Sam many times. I had a good set following Sam. Like he had a good set that I went up behind him and had a good set. Not a Sam set, but a good set. Um, and that was the moment that I first felt like, oh, it's not just a dream. I can actually do this. I really can do this. Did you right. have that moment where you knew you really could do it? Um. For sure, I'm. I, I'm trying to think of one. Um, 
for some reason, the one that's popping into my mind was is fairly recent. But oh, for a while, <laughs> you know, talk about Lucian putting you in a bad position. For a while, every time Jerry Seinfeld came and did a, a guest spot at Gotham, they were booking me to follow him. And um, on a particular night, he really killed and the audience, it was big crowd. So of course they're very, they, you know, they're still talking. Can you believe we actually got to see Jerry Seinfeld? Yes, I can believe it. And it's not that big a deal, but anyway. <laughs> um, uh, so Jerry Seinfeld came off and I knew I had to change. I had to totally change gears. Otherwise I was screwed. And so I said, uh, I think I said something, it was the whole thing with the Renee Zellweger thing came out where she looked like she had all that plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, you know, I said, the guy introduced me, Corey Kahane, and I was like, uh, uh, I'm using the name Corey Kahane, but a lot of you know me as Renee Zellweger. It didn't even matter, it was a great joke. I just complete, I was zoomed in on a pop culture reference. I was a woman, it fit, it was the biggest news and a, me, a, a big applause. Like everybody realized, okay, wait a second. We have a professional here. She knows what she's doing. And uh, I may not be giving it justice, but um, that is one of the smartest things you can do. If you have to follow somebody who killed or somebody famous, grab a pop culture reference so that the audience goes, that, that's, a, that's a good piece of advice. Um, yeah. and, and this might just be my personal curiosity. It may not help any other comic in the world. Do you rather follow somebody who kills like, Jerry did, or would you rather follow someone who bombs? Well, I prefer following someone who's right down the middle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be that would be all of our choices. Uh, but for me personally, I'd rather follow someone who kills because at least the audience is still happy. And you have someplace right. to take him from. You right. know, when I, for me, the worst feeling in the world is if the comic before me is, is eating it and I know I'm there just for cleanup duty, that feels awful for me. Let's put it this way. If someone kills and I have a good MC, then that's yeah. the greatest situation. But if you have an MC that doesn't know what to do, it's like, you know, that starstruck themselves and they're still carrying the excitement from, from the star that they just took off. Mm -hmm. It can really hurt me. Now, you, in, in the few times you, you've emceed shows I've been on, you're an unbelievably good MC. But I, I always get the feeling you don't like doing it. I hate doing it. And, and uh, you're the only person who's ever, only because I like you and so I probably gave a very loving intro. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. Eddie Engel, the, uh, the guy who books the new talent uh, at Gotham will never use me as an MC. You know really? I'm no. When, you when know I what? They're different skill sets, Jim. So yeah. if you're an MC, you've got to really be like fast with the crowd work and whatnot. And I am such, I'm so into my material and honing my material. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be sloppy. You have to be sloppy and, and silly and go with the flow. You can't be too controlling when you're an MC, and I think yeah, you're a far better MC than me. Oh, thank you. It means a lot, actually. But you know, it's it's fun watching comics and seeing what they're comfortable with and seeing what they enjoy doing. So, uh, last thing, because I know you got to get back to your family. Thank you for being so kind with your time sure. today, especially like, because this was much more interesting than I expected. <laughs> I'll take that backhanded compliment. Uh, what's, uh, what are you most looking forward to? Because we're recording this mid-pandemic. What are you most looking forward to doing when you get back on stage? Is there a club you're looking forward to working? Is, is there something you're looking forward to doing on stage? Or is it just getting up on stage? I got to tell you, I miss the boats. I really like working on the cruises. I mean, I'm very lucky. I only work the five-star ships now. You know, the, the ones, you know, that where the caviar is included. Um, I, I enjoy it. I sort of feel like I'm, it allows me to be semi-retired, Jim. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, except for two nights this week, I'm living the life of, of a retired person. 
And I worked so hard, you know, I worked so hard. I raised two kids, one of them alone. I feel like I'm entitled to that. I know that's a cop out. I don't know, what else am I looking for? I'm, I'm looking forward to hanging with comics again. There's, you know, there's nobody that gets me more than a comedian. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, you know what it's like to be a comedian at a cocktail party is deaf. You know what I mean? I can tell you the mm -hmm. same five freaking questions that I'm going to be asked. And, I, you know, I, this is my one side of the conversation. Uh, yeah, no, uh, like at least 25 years. Yep. Write all my own material. Uh, no, I, I never actually did try out for Saturday Night Live. I'm not really a sketch comic. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I think it'd be great to get on The Tonight Show. Yeah, I should call them. I should call them. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll go to the same parties. Uh, right? But then if you give me 10 minutes in the back of the room with three or four comics, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like I've, I've recalibrated myself, I think, a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's going home. I miss comics. Yeah, me too. Well, Corey, this has been a, a, fun, a fun conversation. Thank you for doing it. And uh, hopefully if anybody actually watches the Stamp Podcast to come back and do it again. I'd like that. Thanks All a right. lot, everybody. Thank yeah, remember, stage time. That's the only thing that matters. Hey, where can they find you if they want, if they want to talk to you about coaching? Where can they find you? Uh, well, you, my website, CoreyKahaney.com, and any version of Corey Kahaney is going to take you there because nobody else has that name. Uh, you can also <laughs> find me on Facebook. You can also find me on Instagram. You can also find me on Twitter. And, um, and if you want to really hear something that's in a little bit of a different tone than stand-up, I have a TED Talk that's on YouTube. Uh, that um, uh, addresses some of the some of the challenges of being a female comic. All right. Well, go definitely uh, listen to that. We will link to it from our YouTube page. Thanks, Corey. Pleasure. Thanks, Bye. Jim. Bye, everybody. Eleven sets a week. It's amazing to hear that come out of somebody's mouth. Eleven sets a week. You know, that's five hundred and sixty-two sets in a year. That's what she was aiming for when she was trying to learn how to be good. If you take one thing from the conversation with Corey, it's the work ethic. It's the amount of work you put into it to get good. I think it's really important for comics to realize, get on stage, get on stage often, and work when you're there. We're going to be back next week with another great guest. Until then, you can follow us on all the, all the places you find podcasts. You watch us every Monday for a new broadcast of a Comedy Legacy podcast. And until then, drop us a line at comedylegacy at nmcworldwide.com. Let us know what you think. And we're looking forward to talking to you again in the future. Goodbye, everybody. This has been a new Media Comedy Worldwide production.